this week, we're going to talk about going. What's our charge? And we're going to look at what Joshua uh, said to Israel at the later or at the last stage of his life, really. So let's spend some time in the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles or your apps on your phone, you can go to Joshua 24, 23. We'll kind of hang uh, right in, in those two chapters this morning. Starting in Joshua 24, verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth or oak tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the, all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This was the last notable event of Joshua's life. He would die soon after that. But before he died, God moved Joshua to call all Israel, along with the tribal leaders and the judges and the officers, to reaffirm the covenant of God. It is no coincidence that the location of this event was at Shechem. In fact, it is with significant intentionality and consequence that Joshua chose this place. For it was over 500 years prior in this same location, and perhaps under this very same oak tree, that God first promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. And to pull on this thread just a little bit more so that we collectively can comprehend the significance of the location of Shechem. This town was situated in a valley that sat between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And it was perhaps as close to the middle of the God-defined borders of Israel that you could get. In fact, when that, that famous uh, kind of lecture from Moses of the blessings and the cursings. It was here at Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And Moses directed the people, six tribes, go stand on Mount Ebal. The other six tribes, go stand on Mount Gerizim. And what he had is he had the six tribes on Mount Ebal representing the curses to shout out across to Mount Gerizim, to the other six, tri six tribes, the cursings of the Lord, if they didn't obey. And then the other six tribes on Mount Gerizim were to shout across to Mount Ebal the blessings of the Lord, if they did obey, the opposite of whatever that cursing would be. So this is a very significant place. They're, they're reaffirm reaffirming the covenant. The land of Israel itself was, was and is a land bridge that connects three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Its strategic location gave it preeminence in international trade. There was, in fact, an international trade route that passed right through the heart of Israel, with Shechem serving as a central choke point. God placed his people, his ecclesia, or called out ones, in this location for the purpose of maximum visibility and maximum impact on a lost and dying world. And this, again, is the first place he made his first promise to Abraham. And now Joshua has assembled the ecclesia at Shechem to recount the fulfilled promises of the Lord and reaffirm the covenant before he goes the way of all the earth. Resonating in the hearts and the minds of Joshua's audience is not only this momentous location, 
but also the historical journey of the present and legacy generations that contributed, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad, of their ultimate arrival in the promised land. They recall the day when God caused the sun to stand still so that Joshua and the Israelite army could rout their enemies. They remembered their covenant renewal after their failure to defeat, defeat the small city-state of Ai, and then their subsequent victory over the same city-state after they purged the sin of Achan. Of course, they reflected on the miraculous destruction of Jericho, and I'm sure some considered the miracle of the Jordan River stacking up on top of itself so that they could cross over the threshold of the promised land on dry ground. Perhaps the more contemplative in the gathering that day reminisced with a heavy heart about their parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles and even maybe some cousins who were condemned to a grave in the wilderness after roaming for as much as 40 years because of their unbelief for a journey that should have taken 10 to 12 days. Israel was now gathered at Shechem, anxiously awaiting what would be the final message from their courageous leader, a leader who had made such an impact for the Lord that the Bible tells us that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua's life and all the days of the elders that outlived him. So this morning, I want to re reflect on Joshua's final charge to Israel, the people he led for over 20 years and, uh, since the death of Moses. And I want us to consider how this charge to a nation, now firmly established and rooted in the promised land, might apply to us both as individuals and corporately as the universal body of Christ. So Joshua begins, having gathered all the people to him, and then we can go to chapter 23, starting in verse 3, and see how he begins his charge. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess the land just as the Lord your God promised you. The first part of Joshua's speech is reminiscent of the words God spoke to him nearly 15 years prior when the seven-year conquest had ended. God said in chapter 13, verse 1, you are old to Joshua, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. And then in verse 6, he said, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. So Joshua's task was fairly simple. He was to allot the land to the tribes. He was playing the role of messenger because the borders were defined many years ago from God to Moses in Numbers chapter 34. In fact, it was in that same exchange where God informed Moses that Joshua and Eleazar, who was the priest and son of Aaron, would be responsible for dividing the land among the tribes according to his borders. God defined borders. So what do we know from Joshua's opening remarks? One, we know that God defines borders. We know that because Paul in Acts 17 says as much when standing in front of the political and the social elite, the philosophers of the day in the Areopagus in Greece, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Number two, we know that God will fight for us. Moses encouraged the young nation when they stood trapped between the Red Sea in front of them and the advancing Egyptian army at their back. After enduring their fearful complaints and ridicule, Moses responded saying, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see no more. For the Egyptians, excuse me, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent or be still in some translations. In the same way, Joshua encourages the people here that the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. But if God defines the borders, our span of influence, if you will, and he drives out the enemy, he removes the barriers and makes our paths straight, then our part is singular in focus. We must possess the land. Joshua's charge to Israel was to take possession of the land that God has defined and cleared for you. The Hebrew term here for possess is yaresh, which adds a subtext that our English translation doesn't quite capture. Yaresh means to take possession of, but adds especially by force. We have to understand that the enemy we fight against, the interlopers and the trespassers of territories they do not own, the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, with that enemy, there is no peaceful transition of power. God has defined our borders. What God has given us is our right. There is no others that have a legal and defensible claim to our possession, and God himself will drive out our enemies, but we must take possession of it, the land. Taking possession harkens back to God's original command to Adam to subdue the earth. Taking possession involves cultivating the land, preparing it for growth, feeding and caring for it. It involves putting in defense systems to keep the enemy out. I'm reminded of Jesus' warning of an evil spirit that has been cast out. After traveling through the arid places, seeking rest and finding none, will eventually return to its original host and bring with him seven more spirits more wicked than itself. If a man whom the spirit was driven out of had not taken possession of the land that Jesus drove the enemy out of, meaning received the grace of the Lord Jesus and allowed the Holy Spirit to take residence in his heart, he would find himself in a worse place at the end than at the beginning if the original enemy had never been driven out. So let's read on to see what practical guidance Joshua gives Israel and God gives us today on how best to possess the land. Joshua continues by imploring Israel in verses 6 and 7 to be strong, to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. This was not an unfamiliar refrain for Joshua because he would have heard this from Moses immediately after he delivered the Ten Commandments to the people. He also heard this directly from the mouth of God when he commissioned him to take the lead after the death of Moses. The first thing we have to establish before we can follow this command is what is the book of the law? What is the book of the law of Moses? It makes sense that we, uh, we have to know the law before we can follow it. 
Moses gives us insight into in Deuteronomy chapter 5 when he is recounting for Israel his exchange with God when receiving the Ten Commandments. After reciting the Ten Commandments to Israel, God instructed Moses, go and say to them, to Israel, return to your tents. But you, Moses, stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them. So from this, we can derive that on top of the Ten Commandments, the book of the law includes every law-related item that God shared with Moses, which is laid out in the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch. So we know that that law includes both moral and civil or ceremonial law, which the Israelites, Moses and Joshua were leading, were bound to follow every letter. You and I, on the other hand, as non-Jewish Christians, are only bound to God's moral law. How do we know that? Because in Acts 15, there was a council of the apostles, if you will, to determine what burden of the law should be placed on the new Gentile believers that were swarming to these house churches. Up to this time, there were zealous Jews called Judaizers that would trail behind the apostles' ministry and then lay the heavy burden of the Jewish civil law on the new Gentile Christians, thereby discouraging some from embracing that gospel. So the apostles then wrote a letter to the new Gentile churches that concludes with this. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. This instruction is obviously coupled with the obligation to follow the spirit of God's moral law, which Jesus laid out during his ministry. In fact, Jesus even added a Cliff Notes version in Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, or depend all the law and the prophets. So for Israel in Joshua's day and us today, in order to possess the land, our God-given inheritance, we must bind ourselves to God's law. But to do that, we have to know it. And to know it, we follow God's counsel to Joshua when he said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. The next admonition from Joshua in the same breath as keeping the book of the law is to not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So Joshua here is drawing a distinction that while there are many ways to do wrong, there is one way to do right. As Jesus said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. As they took possession of the land, Israel would face temptation to turn to the right or the left from the unlawful residents that remained, that God said he would drive out. This, the presence of this threat from the invading nations 
leads to Joshua's next command for Israel, not to associate with these nations, these which remain among you. God has called us to live a life set apart. We are God's ecclesia, that Greek term that means called out ones. God means for us to look and act different from the rest of the world, to be that city set on a hill, a light that shines in the darkness. That separation serves a twofold purpose. The first, for us, the church, to avoid the snares and trappings of the world. And then secondly, to be a witness to the world, that a life set apart looks different. It's a life of joy and peace and true community. So remember, Israel, here at Shechem, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the center of the world in, in a manner of speaking that God placed Israel in, this was his purpose. I put you here because other countries, other peoples have to travel, travel your roads, and they need to see that you act and look different, that there is true community, even to the, to the point of that you treat the other, the foreigner, different than other countries. So Joshua then elucidates the consequence of assimilating with these other nations, saying, for if you turn your back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive these nations out before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good ground that the Lord your God has given you. You cannot stand too close to the fire without getting burned. As a Christian, you cannot live so close to the world and not be ensnared by it. That's why Paul commanded the church not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, saying, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? One of the primary threats of assimilation was falling into idolatry, which at best would result in a blasphemous form of polytheism wherein Israel would worship God alongside these idols. And at worst, they would reject God altogether in favor of these false gods. So let's take a moment here and define, define some things. Who were these idols? And how did their influence persist for ages? Moses answers this explicitly in Deuteronomy 32 when he says, Israel stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Paul corroborates this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he clarifies that the sacrifices of pagans are two demons. This is useful context for us to understand Ephesians 6.12, which I said earlier, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. These demon idols were not a new problem for Israel. They have been a thorn in the side of humanity from ancient times. These false gods are likely the fallen angels that were expelled from heaven during Satan's rebellion. They were the Baals and Ashtoreth and Molech, among others of Canaan. They were the pantheon of Egypt 
and then the pantheon of Assyria, and then the pantheon of Babylon, and then the pantheon of Persia, then Greece, then Rome. These demons thrived in perpetuity from age to age until the first century when they were forced into the shadows by the king of kings. Paul writes of this momentous shift, and momentous it was, in Colossians 2 when he says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Jesus demonstrated his unmatched power over the spiritual realm. None could withstand his authority. So let me be very clear here. The Lord's humiliation of the spiritual forces of darkness when he walked the earth is the reason that these demonic pantheons of Rome and Greece passed from reality to legend to myth. Before Jesus arrived, these false gods were celebrated, worshipped, revered, and publicly accepted and acknowledged. But after Jesus put them to open shame, humanity nearly unanimously abandoned these idols. But returning to our narrative, the threat that Israel faced from the idolatrous nations they were supplanting was a forceful and legitimate one. It's not one that should be glossed over, that you think that these were just figures of wood and stone. These were demonic entities that were influencing the ancient world and still do today. One that would ensnare God's people for generations and will very likely emerge again as we approach, approach the end times and lead many astray. Joshua, being well aware of the challenges that lay ahead for the young nation, implored them to pursue righteousness by meditating on and abiding by God's law. Stay on the straight and narrow, separate from the surrounding nations, and reject the very real threat of idolatry. Joshua was wise enough to know that pursuing righteousness for the sake of self-serving piety would inevitably fall on its face. That's why after commanding the people to reject idolatry, he immediately follows by telling them to cling to the Lord. And then a moment later, to be careful to love the Lord your God. The Hebrew word here translated as cling is dabak, and is the same root word from Genesis 2.24 when God says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Those of us that are married are well aware that this clinging to your spouse cannot happen if you're still clinging to your former life. And since my wife and mom are in the crowd today, I'll share this with you. In the beginning, I'm embarrassed to say, but years of our marriage, whenever some malady fell upon me, when I had man sickness, <laughs> Amber, who has her undergrad in biology and was going toward a pre-med track, so she knows her stuff, she would tell me what's wrong and tell me what I need to do and what I don't need to worry about. But without fail, in secret, I'm here texting my mom. <laughs> Amber says this, but what do you think? <laughs> and every time, it's, and eventually my mom called on and said, just listen to what Amber says. But Joshua's message to Israel and the Holy Spirit's message to us is to let go, to release those things and places and people that are prevent you from clinging to the Lord. In addition to that, we are told to love the Lord. Surely we know that there is an emotional element attached to that word. 
an affection toward another. But love as defined by the Bible and exhibited by God is much more than that, more resilient than a passing emotion. True love separates itself from its modern perception in its commitment through challenges. We see this dynamic at play through God's love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so that's how God showed his love for us, but how do we show our love to God? Our love for the Lord manifests not in our sacrifices, nor our emotionally charged worship or prayer experiences, not to offend, but in our systematic, diligent, and disciplined obedience. This was Samuel's response to King Saul. King Saul, he was about to go into battle. Samuel said, okay, I'm going to be there and I'll make the sacrifice, the traditional sacrifice before going into battle. So wait on me, seven days. Saul's waiting. To his credit, he waited seven days and he tried. But then he decided Samuel's not going to show up. Can't rely on those prophets. So he offers the sacrifice. Maybe with good intentions, maybe not. I like to think it was with good intentions to entreat the favor of the Lord. His heart was in the right place, but good intentions are not always God intentions. Okay, so Samuel shows up and he says this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in 1 John 5, 3, we read, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Finally, Joshua ends his charge to the people by drawing a line in the sand, assembled again in the valley of Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which stands as a visual reminder of Moses' poignant message to Israel decades earlier when he said, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Blessing, remember, physically represented by this mountain, Mount Gerizim, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God. And the curse, represented by Mount Ebal, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Joshua said, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God's demons your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A similar challenge was proffered by Elijah hundreds of years later during his encounter with the prophets of Baal, which shows us just how prevalent the threat of idolatry was. Addressing Israel, who had been led astray by these idols, Elijah said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Joshua was forcing Israel to make a commitment. He made clear that vacillating between worshiping God and worshiping the pantheon of false gods was not an option. This decision faces every man and woman having within them the breath of life. Will you believe in Jesus and be saved? Will you take possession of his free gift of salvation? Or will you reject him? There is no middle ground. It's not possible to hold on simultaneously to life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
Church, close your eyes and bow your head for me just for a moment. Are there any in the house today that today you would say, I want to commit my life to the Lord Jesus? If you would, just slip your hand up in the air so that I can see it. You can put it right back down. Any in the house that have not, that want to commit your life to the Lord. Thank the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the time we've spent together today. We pray that you would continue to challenge us to gather together, not only in this house, but outside as well, to gather together as believers. It doesn't have to be with just our, our church folks, but believers at all places to gather with them. We pray that you would help us to grow in our faith, to grow in our relationship with you, to love you with our hearts and our minds, and our spirit and our strength, and to love each other. And we pray that you would bind us to your word, to your law, to the moral law, so that the world can see that we act different, that there is something different about us. There is a joy and a peace amidst the chaos in the world, a tranquility that resides with your people that will attract people into that relationship with you. We thank you for your many blessings, Lord, and pray that you would bless each one of us and to give us a great week. In Jesus' name, amen. It was great to be with you this morning. I want my wife to come up. Amber, she has a quick announcement. It's not that kind of announcement. Those years are over, y'all. Those years are over. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. I want to take a quick second to tell you about Friday nights. So if you are new here, we want to invite you to what we're doing on Friday nights. We start setting up here at 4 o'clock, and so all of this comes down when you guys leave today, and then we come in at 4 o'clock and set everything up. If you want to come help at 4, please come on. We'll find something for you to do as far as setting all of this stuff up. But even if you can't make it at 4, come at 6 o'clock. We have dinner and fellowship. We have a time where we just come together as a family. Um, Ivan and Julie have a short message, and then we introduce one of our core families each week. So we'd love to have you for dinner. It is free. You do not have to worry about paying anything, so just come and join us for that. If you have any questions, about Friday nights. You can see me, you can see Rosie, Erica over here, you can see Tammy, any one of us can tell you about Friday nights. So I hope you guys have a great week. Woo!